and read about what Jesus Christ has done in order to effectually call us and deliver us into this progressive sanctification that is now taking place. We read about that in Philippians 2. We've um, spent three weeks looking, three different Sundays looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And now we turn our attention to verses 12 and 13. But you'll see that verse 12 begins with those two critical words, so then. So you can't move on to verses 12 and 13 without understanding why it begins by saying, so then. And we'll look, therefore, at chapter 2, verses 1 through 14 as our reading, and then just verses 12 and 13 as our text for the sermon today. Hear the reading of God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Take just one more moment for prayer. Father, send us your Holy Spirit. Breathe into us the breath of life through the living word of God. Change us and transform us as we consider this living word from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't take yourself too seriously. That's, relatively speaking, good advice. Don't take yourself too seriously. Something about the very humility we've been considering involves putting yourself in perspective, realizing who you are as a person, and not taking yourself 
too seriously. But I believe these two verses here that we're looking at as our text today, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, maybe reiterate that idea, don't take yourself too seriously, but then go on to say, well, don't take yourself too seriously, but take this very seriously about yourself. Understood the right way, sure, don't take yourself too seriously, don't be high-minded, don't be proud, don't be arrogant, understand who you are, understand how short we humans live and how weak we actually are, don't take yourself too seriously. But Paul is saying, take this very seriously about who you are. And I think that's helpful because what stands out, what really pops about these verses, maybe even the phrase we remember, is fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to suggest to you at the very outset here that Perhaps more than any other verse, if we focus just on that, we're taking things completely out of context. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Philippians insisting on seeing the gospel context in which Paul's commands take place. That he doesn't just launch into instruction and commands, but instead Paul has a way about telling us what to do in which we don't hear a drill sergeant or a harsh taskmaster because he so couches these things in the gospel, in the good news. And we've already seen that in chapter 2. He begins, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affliction and compassion, he's saying, look at the church that you're a part of. If you see any of this at all, then take it to the next level. Build on that gospel truth and Make my joy complete and be of the same mind and have the mind of Christ in you. And I think it's helpful to then see verses 5 through 11 as another foray into that gospel. He's not doesn't jump from the commands given in verses 2 through 5 to verse 12 and say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But instead speaks to us about Jesus Christ before he became a man, what he did as a man, what he did in and through his death, his death itself, and then his resurrection, his ascension is all there in verses 6 through 11. And it's only after that that he comes back to giving commands, orders, instruction. Instruction that includes work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But before getting there, let's focus on that, so then. Paul saying, I have belabored this gospel point. I have summarized the entire life of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. I've reminded you of where he is now. And with that fixed in mind, so then, I have more instruction for you as the people of God. So then, verse 12, So then, my beloved, 
just as you as just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Maybe that initially adds fear to the verse that speaks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, because Paul is saying, not only when I'm watching, not only when I'm with you, not only on Sunday morning at 11 a.m., but all the time, no matter where you are, when you're alone, when nobody else in the world will know what you're up to, when you are in the absence of the Apostle Paul and anybody else, obey. And I want you to think about the last time that word obey was used in Philippians 2. Because I find it to be far more helpful as a motivator than the initial fear that verse 12 may incite. Being found in human appearance, chapter 2, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death of a cross. You see how naked it is to launch into instruction concerning obedience without the context, without the so then? Paul is saying, Jesus Christ, who was God, who had no need in himself to become a man and prove himself as a holy being, nonetheless became a man and lived in every, at every point obedience even when it took him by the will of God to the cross itself and there as the only being to have ever lived as a human being not deserving wrath incurred wrath the wrath of God for sins he didn't commit the only human who didn't deserve hell incurred hell on earth through the cross. And though he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was nevertheless obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So now you, you live every moment saying, I am not called to a naked obedience, but an obedience I understand through the cross of Christ. Affliction, trial, temptation, difficulty, grief, hardship, times in which you are alone, are alone, and sorely tempted not only by remaining indwelling sin in a world that has all sorts of sinful offerings surrounding you, but perhaps even by the devil himself. And you can say, Christ went to the cross for my sake. I can endure the cross in light of that. He was obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of his cross. I will aspire to obedience, even when bearing the cross he has assigned for me. As you have always obeyed, even in my presence, obey now in my absence. Work out your salvation. And let's focus now on that. We've looked at so then and how critical it is to what happens here in verse 12 and 13. But before we go on to fear and trembling, let's look at working out your salvation. And we notice immediately he doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say earn your salvation. If he did, it would undermine everything he's written so far, especially all that we've talked about Jesus Christ doing on the cross, which has secured for us salvation. That's why during the confession of faith, we belabored the point that we are effectually called, that we are justified, that we are adopted, that those are acts of God's grace through which he brings us to a point in which he works in us and progressively sanctifies us. And what Paul is saying here is take account of all that Jesus Christ has done for you. Look at what Jesus did. It wasn't just that he was born as a human and lived this perfect life of righteousness and was obedient to the point of death, enduring even the wrath of God on the cross. It was for your sake. The sovereign Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is yours. You're in relationship with him. You're united to him. You're meant to reflect on that. He secured your salvation. He gives it to you as a gift. And now you're called to work it out. I know this is very basic, but that's good. If even the children among us can understand it, then the rest of us can too. If you owed a million dollars and somebody paid the million dollars, and in addition to paying the million dollars that you owed, put a million dollars into a checking account for you. Your debt would be paid and you'd have something saved. And it would be at that point that you would have to work out what to do with it. And if you look at people who have come into gobs and gobs of money, whether through a lottery or an inheritance or celebrity or whatever it might be, you realize that working out what to do with gobs and gobs of money is a serious business. And people have often used gobs and gobs of money to their own destruction, to their own undoing. And what we have through Jesus Christ, the weight of it, what we read of as we read of his estate of humiliation, being born, being a servant, going to the cross, being perfectly obedient, enduring the penalty for our sins and giving us the righteousness that is his own. 
far superior than paying a debt of a million dollars and putting a million dollars in savings for us, literally saving us from our sin, it brings us to this point where we say, now I've been called, I've been foreknown, I've been predestined, I've been justified, I've been adopted. I am now set apart for holiness, progressively being made holy. It is the place where I am called to work out this salvation. And I know how that comes across and how our Minds tend to work, you know, God saved me and now it's up to me to do the rest sort of thing. And it's fascinating that Paul is so zealous to keep you from that. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He almost can't come in with that fast enough to remind you it's not just that foreordination and predestination and calling and election and justification and adoption are acts of God's grace, this whole progress of sanctification that you are now in is the ongoing act of God's grace in you. Nevertheless, part of being a person made in God's image, able to think and reason and consider and plan and look at your own past and Consider your own future is being able to evaluate where you're at and say, I'm in the progress of sanctification. I've been set apart for holiness by his grace, and now he is at work in me, transforming me from one degree of glory to another. It is the place in which I work out this salvation and see what it has to do with every last moment of my life. And think about that. You know, read over and over all that Christ endured to secure the salvation for you, to be at work in you. And tomorrow at 9 a.m., say, what does the fact that I am saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ have to do with this very moment in my life? What does being saved by God's grace mean for you on this coming Friday night? What does being saved by God's grace mean for you as you slog through another week and make some plans for the weekend? What does being saved by God's grace mean for you in private, while you're on the job, when you're interacting with your immediate family, when you're fulfilling your different roles and responsibilities as a person, as a Christian? What does it mean to be one who is saved doing each of those things? Work it out. Don't wither under terror from this verse. Make it practical. Work out what it means. And when you do, go with the Apostle Paul to verse 13, saying it's God who is at work in me. That's the second point. I think I forgot to mention the first point was work out your salvation. The second point is what we have in verse 13, and I've intentionally skipped fear and trembling because I think we will profit most from coming back to that. 
But for now, let's go on to where Paul goes. Don't only work out your salvation, but do it conscious of the fact that it is God who is at work in you. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, God helps those who help themselves. That's not a verse of the Bible. That's quote-unquote human wisdom that is not revelation from God. God does give grace to the humble. God is at work in those who, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, realize that God himself, as a man, endured a life long a state of humiliation and now calls you as Christians in that same Christ to live a life that is in a state of humiliation so that he can one day exalt you. And he does strengthen the humble. And his grace is at work from start to finish in effectual calling in justification, in adoption, in sanctification. He has done everything necessary to set you apart as holy and as his own, and now progressively, moment by moment, from one degree to another, he's alive and at work in you, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. You are a work in progress. On some level, and I think this is a mystery, the holy, holy, holy God understands that you're a sinner, that you're not where you will one day be, that there's still a lot of work that he needs to do in your life. And he's not wringing his hands up in heaven saying, oh, what a terrible sinner. He's saying, I'm at work even through that sin. Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I'll use those sins in his or her life in a way that brings them to appreciate amazing grace all the more. Transforming you from one degree of glory to another, and it's here as we consider that it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. I want you to think back to chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is how we get to fear and trembling. This is why it's important to take at least this much as very seriously about yourself. At least take this seriously about yourself. God is at work in you. You're a vessel of God's grace. Think of the great lengths to which the triune, eternal God went 
to secure salvation for your sake. Becoming man, living righteously in a fallen world, going to the cross, obedient through that entire ordeal for you so that you would be a trophy of God's grace. New creation. God is at work in you, not just to save you, but to continue making you more and more holy, ever at work, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. Bringing that to completion. Think about how much that grace means to God. And that it is manifested in you. Take that seriously about yourself. And hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You see why you, can't, you have to take yourself seriously to some extent? You're not your own. It's not up to you. The Lord purchased you with a price. And don't glance over that question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? I think coming to church, if we were asked, do you worship God in a temple any longer? Most of us would say, no, we don't need a temple anymore. We have a church. And Paul would say, don't say that. <laughs> You're a temple. The Holy Spirit, the glory of the Lord, fills you. The grace of the Lord is within you. Take that seriously about yourself. He went to great lengths to save you from your sins, to give you the salvation that you are called now to work out, and he hasn't left you alone. God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He is in you. Work out these things. Work out this salvation knowing precisely that. Do you see now why he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do you see why there is this emphasis on taking at least this much about yourself seriously, so seriously that you perhaps tremble in fear? You're in the presence of God. Always. When you're alone, when you're not in the presence of St. Paul or anybody else in this room, when you're alone, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're in the presence of God when you're alone. When you're with your family, when you're on the job, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're exercising, when you're at the gym, when you're eating, whatever you're doing, you are constantly and always in the presence of the true and living God because the Holy Spirit is in you. God is at work in you through himself, the Holy Spirit, bringing you to completion, transforming you from one degree of glory to another, calling you, enabling you to work out your salvation 
And because that occurs in the presence of the true and living God, we do it with fear and trembling. Paul's calling on Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Worship the Lord with fear and trembling. You remember how that psalm continues. Kiss the Son. This is the whole Christian life. The Lord's at work in you. You're in his presence. You fall before him and worship him. You kiss him lest he be angry. You see yourself as his servant, a trophy of God's grace, a vessel of his grace. You respect the fact that God takes grace so seriously that he would become a man in order to shed divine blood and die to secure that grace for you. So yes, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling as you recognize that you are in the presence of the Lord. You take it seriously. But you have to appreciate the many dimensions to that idea of fear and trembling. I think the scripture... Golden New Testament is the only literature I know of that unites together fear and joy. Philippians 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. At the end of Matthew after Jesus Christ rises again from the dead, we read these glorious words that the two women that were at the tomb left quickly with fear and great joy. And behold, Jesus met them, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, it doesn't say that they kissed his feet, but perhaps they did, kissing the sun. It certainly tells us they took hold of his feet. Every knee will bow. Their knees bowed in worship to the exalted, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing Jesus said to them was, do not be afraid. In fear... With joy, they bow in worship to the exalted, risen King Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Look back 
Think of how seriously God takes this whole idea of grace. That he secured salvation for you. Doesn't instruct you to earn your salvation or secure your salvation or to work for your salvation. But giving you salvation does indeed say, work it out now with fear and trembling. And as you tremble in fear in the presence of the Lord that is always with you because the Holy Spirit indwells you as his own people, making you a temple of God himself, look back and say, grace has brought me thus far. Look forward and say, grace will lead me home. And trembling in fear, say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, and as it were, at the feet of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, bow down, kiss his feet, rejoice in fear and trembling, and hear him say, "'Do not be afraid.'" Father in heaven, we are so thankful for a word from God that is full of complexities and paradoxes, that a grace that teaches us to fear relieves our fear, that we are called to a fearlessness in the fear of the Lord, that fear and trembling can simultaneously be joyful and our greatest comfort. All these are ways of describing what it means to truly worship you with heart, strength, soul, and mind. Give us fearless and fearful hearts as we continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.